Good morning. How are you all? It's so good to be here. Um, I know Jordan kind of referenced some of his engagement with me online. I was also lurking about who Jordan was as well. So when we got together, it was both a sense of he was grateful to meet me. And I was so, uh, just so, so grateful to hang out with him as well. So uh, I am so honored to be with you all this morning. Uh, So grateful for Jordan and to the Renaissance staff for inviting me. And by way of introduction, not only to uh, me, but also to the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I want to tell you the story of my names. So my first name is Jay. Uh, But what you likely didn't know is that my middle name is Elmer. (laughs) There was a good laugh right here. Um, So that was middle school for me. Anytime that there was a substitute teacher, Jay Elmer, uh, and then everybody would say Wesley Wabbit or, you know, craft time was always the worst for me growing up because it was the Elmer's glue. Uh, But I have both my grandfather's names. Jay uh, was my father's name, was my father's dad's name, and he died two years before I was born. And then Elmer is my mother's father's name. And Elmer died uh, in about 2007. So at that time, I was in grad school in Seattle. He had passed away. He grew up uh, just outside of Gainesville, Florida. And so I remember going to his funeral, and maybe you've been to a funeral like this, but the sadness that I felt was not so much that Elmer had passed away, although that was, uh, family was in grieving, but far more the reality that I did not know Elmer in his life. So we knew the headline stories. We knew that he was a Pearl Harbor survivor. We knew that he was one of the first missionaries allowed into Albania, uh, but who he was, the stories that had defined his life, uh, he was often a very closed book. And so I remember flying from Jacksonville, Florida, back across the country to Seattle at that time, and just looking out the plane window and saying, no more. Uh, I am not going to attend another funeral without understanding some of my story and my family uh, last name. So the first up on the docket for me was uh, my grandmother, Dorothy, who was my father's mom. So does anyone have kind of like warm, fuzzy feelings when your grandmother's name comes up? Yes. Uh, I I envy you. (laughs) I don't understand that experience with Dorothy. So Dorothy could be just a cold steel door when it came to sharing any stories of emotion. So one story that... I remembered was, I was probably about eight years old, it's the middle of January, and my grandmother had just traveled back from Northern Virginia, where I grew up, uh, to Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. So my parents were out on a date, because my grandmother called and she says, hi Jay, can I talk to your father? And I said, Grandma, uh, they're out right now, can I take a message? And she said, yes, you can. And she said, if you could just let your father and your family know that I was quite disappointed by what your family gave me for Christmas this year. (laughs) Eight years old, that's what I'm supposed to be saying, right? So that was Dorothy. So uh, during this time, I was struggling with some dementia and my family needed to relocate her from Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, 
out to uh, Paulsboe, Washington. So the best description of Paulsboe, Washington is like, it's like a Nordic fishing village out of the Truman Show uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So for a woman with Southern sensibilities, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, this is not the place that she would ever want to end her life. So she was miserable, and her 90th birthday was approaching, and so one of, you know, thinking back to my grandfather Elmer's funeral, I wanted to get to know Dorothy, uh, wanted to understand this cold steel door of a grandmother. And so I went to an antique store in the Seattle, Washington area, and I went in to tell the clerk, I'm like, my grandmother, I think, was born in 1917. I need skeleton keys from, you know, 1910 to 1920. Do you have any? He takes me over to this case, and he finds three keys. I bought them, bought a, a, a box as well. And so on my grandmother's 90th birthday, I take her out to a cafe. I have this really beautiful box, meaningful gift inside. Uh, I hand it to her, and she's a little bit perplexed, and she says, what is this? And I said, Grandma, uh, this box and these keys symbolize three lunches that I want to take you out to to learn more about your life, right? This is like the best grandson gift that has (laughs) ever been given. I'm giving you all some ideas for the holidays. Uh, But my grandmother, and you've been in these moments, right, where you give a gift, and my grandmother looks down, looks back up at me, and says nothing. Two seconds goes by, five seconds, 10 seconds, nothing. She eventually looks down at the box, looks back up at me, and then says two sentences that change the trajectory of my life. She takes the box, shoves it, and says, Jay, there are some stories you just don't tell. There are some doors you just don't open. It's about time you take me home. That was the last meaningful conversation that I had with my grandmother before she died. So Dorothy was a mystery. So after her death, uh, my family started doing a little bit of digging into who was this woman, where did she grow up? We knew a couple stories, but there was a lot more that we needed to find out. And so uh, as my father began to look into different paperwork, Uh, As the story goes, he found a piece of paper that was attached to his birth certificate. And the question was asked, Dorothy, have you had any previous births? Well, my dad grew up believing that he was the firstborn son to Dorothy, but the box was checked yes. So as my family started doing some digging, part of what we realized was uh, more than likely, my grandmother was sexually assaulted by a family member. Uh, got pregnant and was shipped off to Louisiana, uh, where she lived for a year or two, sometime around the age of 13 or 14. So I share that story because my grandmother's cold locked door of emotion was not random. It was a direct reflection of the parts of her story that she had never been invited to share or tell. And I've wondered a lot since that day, how would my life have been different? How would my father's life have been different if my grandmother had been in a context to be able to share some of these stories? When we don't tell our stories or know our stories, our personalities, our self-destructive behaviors will begin to do it for us. My grandmother uh, is who the poet Maya Angelou refers to 
when she says this beautiful line, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. And that's our task today. What are the untold stories that exist within you and within the generations of your last name? Uh, the simple assumption here is that all of us have a story that we do not want to tell. Uh, it could be a story from long ago that we have concluded is just too unspeakable to name. It could be an unwanted sexual behavior like a problem with porn, an infidelity that you participated in a long time ago, an eating disorder, uh, or just any story that really bears the mark of shame. And you know that you're getting close to these stories when that severe voice of shame warns you to remain silent. It's that sense that any word that you say can and will be used against you. But what I want to invite us to is this counterintuitive, if not radical, notion that your untold stories, like my grandmother's, actually contain the keys to the freedom that you have been waiting your whole life to find. And therefore, one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself, your marriage, your community, this church, is to suspend the belief that you know what your broken story reveals about you. Shame is a merciless storyteller, and we would do well to question its narration in our lives. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about our stories. Uh, and we're going to be talking about, specifically, our stories related to sex and our stories related to trauma through the lens of Genesis 16. And before we begin, I want to acknowledge that sex and trauma are not topics that the church has handled well or at all. And therefore, that is central to so much of the secrecy, silence, and judgment that confines all of us as we get close to these topics. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, I am often critiqued for having a fire hose. Uh, and so just that sense of there's going to be a lot of content and a lot of stories. Uh, but here's what I would say, is there might be stories related to Dorothy, related to Hagar, related to who Jesus is. And I would just want you to be attentive to what are the stories, what are the flashes, what are the memories that are coming up within you? Because I think those are the stories that the Spirit of God might most be inviting you uh, to the process of healing. So a couple uh, just brief remarks with regard to sex and trauma. Uh, way too short uh, of an introduction, but if I were to describe a theology of sex in seven words, it would be this. God loves sex, and God loves you. So sex is this very stunning gift that God gives to us, and it is a metaphor of all of the pleasure and desire that God wants to give us in our relationships and in our salvation. Uh, but one of the things that I think about in terms of our sexual story is, uh, you know, sex in our bodies are often very similar to clay. Um, there's a lot that, you know, goes into the process of how clay was formed. Uh, but throughout much of our life, our sexual story is impacted not only from church history, from people like Augustine, from purity culture, uh, from just a lot of the untold stories that we don't really know about that are informing our sexual life. And so what ends up happening is this clay of our sexual life uh, begins to be maybe messed with. 
Uh, maybe we go through something like a sexual assault, we're abused. Uh, something about a developing body part is highlighted, named, criticized. And that begins this process of weaving sexual shame into our life. And then we go through adolescence, we go through kind of our early 20s, 30s, even to this day, and there's some sense of, I not only come from a story of sexual shame and brokenness or silence, but then I look at some of the decisions that I've made, some of the fantasies that I have, and I don't know what to do with them. And so what ends up happening is that this you know, notion of our life our sexual life as clay, what we end up doing is we begin uh, to put it behind our back. And this is kind of the, the mistake that most religious people make, is we think, I've got to get all this thing sorted out. I've got to compose it into this beautiful piece of art. Uh, I can't really tell people what I have been through, what I'm struggling with. I need to get it all sorted out in isolation and then present this kind of rosy and boring picture to the world. And it doesn't work, right? Um, because part of what the gospel says is that our brokenness, our heartache, the ways that we have been sinned against are not a barrier to knowing God. They are bridges to understanding God's commitment to us. And so therefore, where should, be, where should we be on the lookout for the arrival of God? It's specifically in some of these heart stories of heartache and brokenness that have affected our sexual life. Uh, I want to talk briefly about trauma. So uh, trauma, you know, The Body Keeps the Score is a great book by Dr. Betzel van der Kolk. Uh, there are, you know, trauma is coming much more into our cultural conversation, which I'm so grateful for. Uh, and in psychology, we, we talk about big T traumas and small T traumas, because a lot of times when you're first interacting with someone around the notion of trauma, people are like, I've never had a traumatic event happen to me. And what they mean is that they may have not had a big T trauma. Uh, so that would be 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, these are events that rock our nation, that kind of mess with us to our core. So that's a big T trauma, but we also have small T traumas. And this is kind of that sense of death by a thousand cuts. So it might be a, you know, profound neglect that you experienced. Maybe they were words or bullying. I often think about middle school as a prototype of hell for <laughs> many of us. Uh, if you have been through middle school, you have very likely been through something of a small T trauma. Uh, living in perpetual poverty, small T trauma. Right? And so we have all of these stories that begin to mess with the foundations of our lives. And so one of the things that we have learned from you know, trauma researchers in the last couple decades is that trauma is not this event that happened to us long ago. Right? It's not that 9-11 is gone. It's the ongoing imprint of that event on us today. Right? So trauma, you know, in the words of Faulkner, the past is not dead, it's not even past. This is what this means. So a lot of times you might think, I don't have trauma because I don't have flashbacks, I don't have memories, but in many ways your trauma is actually being lived out in your reactions and in your symptoms. So when you think about your anger, when you think about your hypervigilance or your anxiety or depression, those symptoms are often signals of unaddressed trauma. 
And so therefore, part of the work of the gospel is not to just do symptom management and pray these things away. Part of the point of the gospel is to go into the stories of trauma, into our reactions and our symptoms, and ask God, what is it that we should do in the midst of this? So let me give you a a very, I, I think, good picture with regard to how does trauma impact us. So uh, it's an image of uh, water fleas, which I know is a strange image to see for a sermon. Uh, So the the water flea on the right-hand side is a normal water flea. It's what you would expect it to look like. But this uh, fella on the left was basically exposed to a predator in the water. I don't know how many days prior, how many hours prior, but essentially it was exposed to a predator, and within a single lifetime, it began to develop this horned head, right? And that horned head will continue to be passed on from generation to generation as long as the threat exists in the water. This is true of water fleas. Water fleas don't have limbic systems and emotional centers. So I want you to begin thinking about like your own family story, some of the, you know, events that you lived through in your family, in your culture, right? Like we live in a society where black men are incarcerated in state penitentiaries at five times the rate of white men, right? During the first month of COVID-19, there were 1,500 reports of anti-Asian racism just in one month alone, right? So when you begin to add up not only these individual traumas, but these systemic traumas, what do you think we collectively look like and feel like because of the predators and threats in the water? Uh, There is so much uh, that we need to do to be able to not just do symptom management, but really in, in terms of what Desmond Tutu says, He says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And that's our task today, is not to do symptom management, not to just pray things away, but to go upstream to find out what is happening in our stories. So Genesis 16, uh, we are going to meet a woman very similar to Dorothy. Uh, who had a story that she didn't want to tell. Now, Genesis 16 could easily be uh, the plot of the next big Netflix series. You're going to see some similarities uh, between this story and a lot of the Netflix series. So it's a very powerful first family in the midst of marital discord. They are experiencing infertility, and a teenage uh, mistress is essentially brought in to be able to conceive of a child. So this is massive levels of drama. And so as we go, we're going to see how this passage invites us to do three things. The first is to face our story. The second is to face our pain. And then third, what does it mean for us to face the kindness of God? So let's read uh, Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. 
And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her. She began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is your fault. I put my servant in your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. Do you feel the drama? Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. So the beginning of Genesis 16 uh, brings us into this gentleman by the name of Abram. Abram's name means father to many. Do you hear the complication? He is the father to no one. Uh, so in the ancient Near East, to be childless would be to you know, basically have a mark of reproach. And so one of the customs that would often happen in circumstances like this was that uh, a wife could be able to find a servant, a mistress, and bring her in for the purpose of conceiving a child. And so, uh, you know, if you have ever been in the midst of infertility in your own marriage, have walked with friends who are going through it, you know that this is a place uh, of tremendous heartache. Uh, it's a place of madness. It's a place of, you know, it, all of these people around you seem to be getting pregnant and having birthdays, and yet the reality of just feeling barren continues to compound and the misery develops. And so this is what Abram and Sarai are experiencing. And so Hagar is brought in, which we're going to unpack her story as we go. But uh, Sarai brings in this woman by the name of Hagar, really a teenager. And Hagar's name means stranger or foreigner. So it is a stranger that is brought into the first family of our faith. And Hagar eventually conceives of a child, and you can almost feel the relief in the family, right? We're going to have an heir. Everything's going to change. But no sooner is there relief in the scene that the drama begins to build. Uh, Hagar gets a little bit of an attitude with Sarai, who is the old barren woman, and then in response, Sarai becomes so angry, so belligerent with what uh, Hagar has done. But she goes to Abram and basically says, hey, what should I do? And Abram, the coward that he so often is in moments like this, says, do whatever you think is right. Well, what do you think is going to happen to a stranger teenage servant in the midst of a very powerful first family. Well, in the next scene, it says that Sarai mistreats her. Well, that word uh, throughout the Old Testament was often a reference to the trauma that the people of Israel had endured under Pharaoh. Some scholars would say that this word mistreatment even has some connotation of a type of sexual assault. 
And so what the author is trying to make clear is that this woman in a faith community has been so profoundly traumatized that hitting the road and heading out into exile where by all accounts she's going to die would be a better place for her than with the patriarch of our faith. And so what I hope you're beginning to get a sense of is that this story of Genesis 16 is not just the story of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. It's your story. It's my story. So how many of us have had a father uh, who may have been a tremendous man of faith, who, you know, like Abram in Genesis 12, left uh, a, a lot of privilege to be able to go into this land that God was calling him to go into. And yet, in moments where you needed a father the most, something of your dad became a coward, and he left you abandoned unto a type of trauma. How many of us have had a mother who schemes to bring goodness into our lives, and yet in moments where uh, she gets upset, in moments that she does not have her way, can begin to turn towards us with a level of cruelty? The story highlights Hagar in so many of our experiences of being brought into the breakdown of a marriage system or a faith system and are used and exploited in order to try to eliminate some of the misery and the tension of a marriage system. And for some of us, it tells the story of Hagar who was brought in from another country to be used. Uh, no voice, she's a stranger and is brought in and mistreated by a very powerful first family. So this is the story of Genesis 16, but what I hope you're beginning to get a sense of is that this is also your story. What's remarkable about Scripture is that Scripture holds this notion of honor and honesty together. We know that Abram in Genesis 12 left everything to go into the land that God was calling him. He is the patriarch of our faith. We revere him and bless him for that. And we also know that he tremendously doubted the promises of God. We know that he attempted to traffic his wife twice. Does it ever strike you that we know these stories, right? This is an ancient Near East document, which means this is an honor culture. You don't tell stories about your family at all. And yet, part of what the scripture is saying is that if you are going to honor someone, you also have to be honest about the stories that you have been around, right? And so many of us in this room today have believed the lie that if I was honest about my family, about my country, about where I come from, then I could not actually honor them. Or if I were to try and honor my family, my parents, my siblings, that would come at the cost of being able to be honest. And this is a really tough teaching for us because the Bible is asking for our honesty with regard to our stories. Why? God wants our grief. Why? Because God wants to bring comfort to you. God wants to keep your tears in a bottle. God wants the stories where you lacked a good father, a good mother, and a good community. Why? Because God wants to father you, 
to mother you and to bring you into a new community. And the more that we tried to hold on to this image of a good enough or perfect family or background, the more it is that we are not open to the goodness and the comfort of God. Uh, The second thing that this passage invites us to do is to face our pain. Uh, Let's look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. Just hit the down button that went to the end of my document. Uh, the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. So in verse 7, Hagar ends up at a spring in the desert or the wilderness. And the first time that I heard this passage, I'm thinking, Uh, This is a very poetic and lovely scene. Uh, You know, I grew up watching Home Alone 2, Lost in New York in the the Plaza Hotel. I'm thinking this is where she is, or if you've ever heard of or been to like air ancient baths, uh, that's where I'm thinking that Hagar ends up. Uh, But the reality is, is that a spring in the desert is much more like a truck stop on I-95 or the New Jersey Turnpike. It's not a place that you want to end up. You know, if, you, if your children kind of were saying, you know, I met someone, and you said, oh, where'd you meet? College, church, and they said, a, a truck stop, I-95. You would have a level of kind of healthy suspicion about interacting with them. So the people that end up in, you know, the springs out in the deserts are travelers. They, this is like the Wild West. These are murderers. These are outlaws. These are people that you don't want to encounter. But again, what is Hagar doing out here? That is a place that is preferred versus the place of trauma that she comes from. And so we're going to address verse 8 in just a minute. Uh, But one of the instructions of this passage uh, that the angel of the Lord says uh, is completely maddening. The instruction is to return to Sarai, which was a place of abuse, a place of shame, and a place of humiliation. And I want to be exceedingly clear that this is not in any way scriptural justification for anything like slavery or domestic violence. Uh, Passages like this have been misused for these purposes of what does it mean to return. And so, you know, end of October, end of domestic violence, abuse awareness month, and it's one of those things where if you need to hear it, God cares more about your safety than he does about your marriage. And so this is not a sermon to address what it means to return back to a place of humiliation. That would be a whole other topic for us to explore. But what comes to mind with this instruction is that very often when God comes to find us, God finds us in some of these exilic places of our lives and invites us to return back to our stories, not for the purpose of harming us, but for the purpose of healing us and remaking the narrative. And so when you think about your own life, um, very often we have been on the road. We have been running from places of trauma places of heartache, stories from middle school and high school and college that we have had no context to begin to put words to. And so while I respect that when we begin to tell these stories, we're going to feel that voice of shame. 
And while shame can be debilitating, part of what I have learned as a psychotherapist is that the power of shame in people's lives is derived from their flight from it. Because the more that you run away from the voice of shame, the more that you will legitimize its message about you. Because shame will carry this open and shut case about how unwanted, about how dirty, about how perverse, about how undesirable you are. And so one of the things that I came across uh, a couple years ago was an article that was interviewing Andy Casagrande. And Andy Casagrande is the videographer of the show Shark Week. Has anyone seen that on Discovery Channel? Yeah, some of you. So it's terrifying. He, I, I mean, I want to question his mental sanity uh, to get into the waters with great white sharks. But he was interviewed, and they said, pretty obvious question, but Andy, what do you do when you're in the waters with a great white shark? And what he said is it's very counterintuitive, but what you do is you swim right up next to the shark with the camera. So I think we have a picture. And so what happens is the great white shark swims up uh, to the camera lens. It realizes that it's not food. It has a fear, amygdala reaction, and it begins to swim off. Because if you are a great white shark, everything in the entire ocean is swimming away from you, except for maybe an orca whale. So when something is swimming at you, the shark has no idea what's happening. And so the shark swims away, and then what Andy says is that, you know, when the shark makes its escape, that's when I make mine. <laughs> And it, what he goes on to say, I think, is profound. He says, if you do not act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. And to me, that really speaks to this notion of all of us have memories, events, stories in our lives that we feel like we are running from. And yet, what does it mean for us to turn and to share some of these stories? So I want to give you just three examples of what it might look like for you to be curious about some of the struggles that you might be facing right now. Uh, the first is going to be uh, with regard to unwanted sexual behavior. So my profession, I am a psychotherapist, work primarily in the area of unwanted sexual behavior. And so that could be the use of porn, uh, infidelity, even some sense of low desire, like you need a defibrillator for your sex life. Um, that's, that's what I work with. And so when we're looking at some of the statistics these days, we know that unwanted sexual behavior is everywhere we look. So a couple slides to show you. So about a third of all marriages will be impacted by infidelity. Approximately 30% of porn users are now women. Uh, porn sites receive more monthly traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. About a third of all women will experience some level of sexual abuse, sexual assault before the age of 18. Uh, about one in every six men will experience some level of sexual abuse. And these are just paper and pencil tests. If you begin to kind of broaden that out to experiences that you may have deemed as awkward or weird, uh, these rates begin to go a lot higher. And so one of the challenges for me as I am a therapist sitting with people's stories is most of the books that I read, most of the Christian books that I read were all what I would kind of put in the category of lust management. Right? And this is the bounce, you know, bounce your eyes, uh, slap a rubber band around your wrist if you're having a sexual thought, uh, some level of accountability, internet monitoring. And as one of my friends said to me when I was writing my book, he said, Jay, 
when I have been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years, something isn't working. And so that kind of led to this decision to do research, uh, very similar to what Desmond Tutu said of like, we've got to go upstream. We need to find out not why is there so much sexual brokenness, that's obvious. We need to understand what are the key stories that are driving it. So I'm going to show you one slide, and it's one slide. Um, this might resonate with you, it might not. But part of what I'm trying to show you is not so much an encyclopedia of how to interpret sexual brokenness, but to say, what can we learn from the process of curiosity? So one of the things that my research looked at was not just did you look at porn or did you pursue an unwanted behavior, but what were the specific fantasies, the specific searches that you put into Google? Well, one of the categories that the research team looked at was, uh, let's say that you wanted to see, you wanted to have power. And so that could be, you know, a race that suggested to you some level of subservience. That could be a college student, someone younger than you, a petite body type. It was kind of coded as this uh, realm of power. Well, we wanted to look at what is actually driving that. And so part of what the research found is that if that was your fantasy life, that could be predicted by having a strict father, dealing with a lack of purpose in your life, and profound levels of shame. So I'm going to invite you to just be a, you know, armchair psychologist for, for a little bit and try and understand what is the strategy of something like this. So if I grew up in a family that tended to be fairly strict, strict families create a lot of discipline, right? And so discipline, the, the root word of discipline is to disciple, right? So was discipline used in your home to teach you, to disciple you, or was it really used to harm you and to shame you? Well, if you grow up in a family system that has a lot of rigidity, a lot of shaming, you are powerless. And so one of the appeals to this type of porn or this type of fantasy is to begin to not feel as powerless. So unwanted sexual behaviors, porn, are not just about lust. They are also about power, right? So we begin to see that. Or, you know, a lack of purpose. If you're feeling like, I can't get anything started in my life, I look back at my life and see a lot of failures. You know, Genesis 3 talks about the curse for a man as the sense of thorns and thistles within life. If you're dealing with thorns and thistles in life and nothing works, one of the appeals to this type of pornography is that it gives you a place to get exactly what you want when you want it, and nothing else on the entire planet can address that. Um, so again, this process of no matter what your unwanted sexual behavior, sexual problem, sexual struggle might be, struggles are roadmaps to healing. So the struggle that you're facing right now in your sexual life is not a life sentence to sexual shame or compulsive behavior. It can become a roadmap to healing. Uh, or maybe some of you are facing not necessarily sexual brokenness, but some realm of there's an uncivil war within you around your mind or your body. You look at yourself and you are filled with endless critique and judgment that deprives you of feeling any real joy in life. You've read Atomic Habits by James Clear a couple times. You've invested into gym memberships, executive coaches to try and get your mind or your body going. And yet the contempt within you seems to continue to run deep. 
Well, one of the things that we have learned from psychology is there is this great phrase that says the way that we talk to our kids becomes their inner voice. The way that our parents talk to us becomes our inner voice. So I can remember uh, just this past week, sitting down with one of my children, we're working on a math problem. We're doing this math problem six or seven times, and my child is not getting it. And that frustration, if the phrase window of tolerance means anything to you, I, I left my window of tolerance, and I was getting frustrated and irritated. And what I essentially said to their face was, why are you not getting this? I don't get it. That's not a neutral statement. It's not curiosity. Those are words that are weaponized. And so part of the grief that I have had to walk through even this week with regard to something like this is that sense of it would not be hard to predict that this child a decade from now, 20 years from now, begins to feel this kind of inner voice of, come on, I should have gotten this by now. What's wrong with me? Why am I not getting it, right? The words that our parents used about our struggles, those uh, experiences that we had in middle school where we were bullied, uh, the messages that culture has given us with regard to uh, our bodies, those are alive and well within us today. And so Richard Rohr has this great quote where he says, the pain that we do not transform, we transmit. Always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to. So some of you might say, hey, I don't want to deal with the past. The past does not matter. But again, in the words of Faulkner, <laughs> the past is not dead, it's not even past. And so if we're not transforming our pain, engaging our pain, we will be in the process of transmitting it. Uh, maybe some of you battle less with sexual brokenness, less with self-contempt, but for you there is this profound sense of abandonment. You have felt lonely throughout your life, and no matter what your relationship status is, the core wound is that no one will ever care about you. You've tried match to find a soulmate. You've cycled through numerous faith communities to feel seen, but the longing within you feels unquenchable. Dr. Kurt Thompson says it like this, we can grow up in families where the food finds the table, the money finds the college funds, and the family finds the church each Sunday, but somehow our hearts remain undiscovered by the two people we most need to know us, our parents. So instead of trying to seek something outside of yourself, instead of trying to, you know, idealize someone else or some other job or some other place, sometimes those things are actually clarion calls to begin to go back to find that boy, that girl in your own life, uh, in your own childhood that was deprived of a level of care and connection, right? This isn't just about blaming our parents. It's about going back to the stories of our lives that lacked good care, and good connection so that we can begin to co-author with God a new future. And then the third thing that this passage invites us to do is to face the kindness of God. So the angel, start in verse 8, it says, the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? And then skipping to verse 13. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord. 
who has spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Beer Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So it's in the desert, in the geography of barrenness and trauma, that a miraculous thing happens. The presence of God finds a foreigner, a stranger, and begins to ask her questions, two of the best questions that could ever be asked of any one of us, which are, where do you come from? And where are you going? So as you get together with people for dinners and have drinks with people, don't just catch up. Ask people, where are you from? I'm from New York City. I'm from Jersey. I'm from Seattle. No, tell me a story about what it was like to be in your middle school. What was it like to be at your dinner table? Where do you come from? And where are you going? And what is completely astounding about this passage is that the first person in the entire scriptures to give a name to God is a foreigner, a stranger, a teenage servant girl is the first person in the entire scriptures to give a name to God. Which makes me wonder, as you begin to go through your stories, what is it that you will begin to name God as? What I want to point out here is that the voice of God is full of kindness and inquiry. God says, where do you come from? Where are you going? And we see this passage, we see this pattern throughout the scriptures. Uh, when Adam has just eaten of the tree that he was commanded not to eat from, God doesn't say, bounce your eyes from that next tempting piece of fruit. Don't do that anymore. God says, where are you? To Jacob, who has been struggling his entire life with issues of identity, the angel of the Lord appears to Jacob and says, what is your name? Um, if we are paying attention to the voice of God, the voice of God is kind. And so some of you, I know this morning, are beginning to hear this voice of frustration or accusation as it relates to a past trauma, a present failure that you're going through. And part of what I would submit to you is that if you are hearing shame, judgment, and accusation, that is not the voice of God. Because when God comes to find us, that voice and that presence are kind, inviting you to deeper reflection about how your sorrow and your sin came to be. Uh, in conclusion, I want to show you all uh, a, a picture of a form of art, a Japanese form of art called kintsugi. Uh, and I know kintsugi has become more and more popular in the last couple years. My wife, I believe, did a kintsugi class in the city. Uh, but it essentially means golden repair. And so the basic premise of kintsugi is that you have this pot that is broken. And the pot is broken, and then just that question of what should I do with something that is broken? Well, we live in the era of Amazon Prime. Uh, so if something is broken, you throw it out, and within two to three days, you will have a new one. 
But this Japanese form of art understands that the brokenness is an essential component to the beauty of the overall piece. And so as you put this golden filament into the cracks and into the fissures, uh, it, it brings to life not just the old pottery, but something brand new. And so when I look at Kintsugi, one of the first thoughts that I had uh, was that this reminds me of the scars of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus has scars? After Jesus defeats death, he could have very easily healed his scars. God could have been and is the greatest plastic surgeon of all time, <laughs> but chooses not to get rid of the evidence of his scars. He understands his scars to be important enough to bring into eternity. Why? Scars tell stories. They tell where Jesus comes from, and they tell where we in Christ are headed. In the very heavy, difficult, but true words of theologian James Cone, Jesus was lynched. His body, too, hung from a tree, deprived of dignity, mocked, whipped, pierced, traumatized, and tortured for hours in the presence of a jeering crowd. This means that Jesus' scars certainly display his great love for us. But make no mistake, his scars expose the violence of this world. And God understands these scars to be important enough to bring into eternity, which I think has radical implications for us today. It means that as you tell stories of trauma and heartache and brokenness, you are not just telling your story, you are making known something of the work of Jesus on our behalf. So the next time that you find yourself in the wilderness of a broken story, may you recognize that the face of God is kind. And his arrival is not to reproof you, but to get down on his knees and to offer you his body and his blood precisely in the midst of a story that you can only see through the lens of trauma or failure. It's only here in these places that we begin to get a sense that this God is an indiscriminate host who loves to offer table invitations to all of us who feel like we are too estranged, too broken, too undesirable. So Renaissance, we simply have no idea the redemption that God has for us within the locked stories of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are a good Savior who is committed to finding us in places of exile, places of brokenness, and you love to invite us to know our story. You ask us where we come from and where it is that we want to go. And so, Jesus, I just pray that your spirit would really invite us to attend to those stories uh, that we have not been free to tell, whether it was in our families or in our faith communities. 
I pray that through the work of this church and through the work of our friendships that we would really lean into those questions. Where do we come from and where are we going? We know that when your kingdom comes, uh, those who are not able to see will be able to see. Those who have not been able to hear will be able to hear. Those who have not been able to walk will be able to walk. And so we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and help us to walk into the healing that you desire for our lives. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.